Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Say Why to Drugs. This one is the last in the current run. I'm afraid I need to take a small break over the summer, but I'll be back with some more episodes in the autumn. And I've saved a real treat for last, an extra long episode that hopefully will tide you over. This is the first panel event that I've done with the podcast, and I think it worked really, really well. It was recorded earlier this year at the fantastic Smithdown Road Festival, a free music festival that takes place every year in South Liverpool. I was really made up to be invited to be part of the festival, and it's great that they wanted this kind of event alongside the music. So thanks very much to them and to the Craft Taproom for hosting it. Given the setting, I thought the theme of drugs and music would be a good one. And as such, this episode's a nice companion piece to the previous one with Baby Shambles drummer Adam Fajcek. So if you haven't listened to that one yet, I would suggest checking it out. But for now, I was really lucky to be joined by some fantastic people on the panel for this episode. They all introduced themselves at the beginning of the recording, but I'll just do so quickly here as well. Firstly, we have Dr. Sally Adams, a lecturer from the University of Bath and a previous guest on the podcast, having joined me to discuss hangovers and her research around them. Then Professor Harry Sumnall, friend of the podcast, longtime advisor and professor of substance use and public health at Liverpool John Moores University. Christopher Torpy, the editor of Liverpool Music and Culture magazine Bido Lito and someone who's heavily involved in putting on Psych Fest in the city. And finally, Guy McKnight, the singer from early noughties band 80s Matchbox Beeline Disaster and current member of the band the DSM4. So quite an eclectic panel and I hope you agree a really fascinating conversation. So without any more waffle from me, we say why to drugs and music. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Say Why to Drugs Live at the Smithdown Road Festival. Um, today we're going to be talking about drugs and music and uh, I've got an amazing panel lined up to talk with me about it. So can I get you all to introduce yourselves please? I'm Christopher Torpy, I'm the editor-in-chief of a music magazine called Bido Lito here in Liverpool, uh, Merseyside and I'm part of the team that works on a number of festivals, one of them being Liverpool Psychfest. Hello, my name's Guy McKnight. I'm a singer. I was in a band called the 80s Matchbox Beeline Disaster, and I'm currently in a band called the DSM-4. Hello, I'm Sally Adams. I'm an alcohol and tobacco researcher at the University of Bath. Hi, uh, my name's Harry Sumnall. I'm a professor in substance use at Liverpool John Moores University. Right. So we know that music and drugs seem to go together. We're obviously we're at a music festival and we're in a pub. Um, but might there be something even more fundamental than that? Anthropologist Donald Brown said that uh, a number of things are human universals. So that is that we've seen them in societies and cultures across the world and across history. And these, this includes things like language. All human societies and cultures have had language. It also includes music. But he also said that it includes drugs or certainly taking substances to cause sort of changes in in your mind. Um, so, Harry, I would like to ask you, what do you think about this idea of uh, drugs and music being something that's been seen in culture throughout history? Uh, well, that, that, that's certainly very true, uh, you know, from, uh, from an anthropological perspective about the development of early society, religions and spirituality. So music, is, of course, and ceremonial music has played a really important part of that. And 
substances and the use of particular types of substances, primarily hallucinogens, lots of evidence around the close links there. But I think perhaps coming more up to date is that science is only really beginning to think and ask questions about these sorts of links. Most scientific research into uh, drugs and drug use is focused on the harms, and there's some very good reasons about that. But very recently, particularly with the renaissance in studies around psychedelics between LSD, and that's, of course, is a drug which is closely associated with with uh, music and creativity, beginning to understand a bit more about what happens in the brain, about when we listen to music, but when we listen to music on drugs. So, for example, research undertaken at Imperial College in London has shown that uh, music activates parts of the brain associated with the evocation of very vivid mental imagery, particular types of emotions, and that is amplified when you're on substances as well. Uh, If we look at some of the science around cannabis, and again, very little work on this, we know that uh, cannabis plants with different ratios of active chemicals, THC or CBD, are said or perceived to produce different effects in the consumers. And part of that ratio is also associated with how enjoyable people say that they find listening to music. And there is one perspective that the reason why we enjoy listening to music is not only because it's familiar forms and evocation of memories, etc., but about the novelty of that music. So novel music, listening to music for the first time is a very different experience of listening to music for the 20th or 30th time, a particular piece of music. And there are some suggestions which suggest that consuming drugs actually interrupts that learning process, so to speak. So music actually seems a lot more novel because when you're listening to the music on drugs, you're attending to different components and qualities of that. You're attending to different aspects, whether that's the sound of an instrument or the meaning, generated meaning of a particular lyric or emotion. But very, very early days yet with regards to the science. Sally, if we can come to you now, do we know much about why there might be a link between drugs and music? Okay, so there's quite a large body of research that's looked at the way that music influences the way people behave. And there's lots of studies on that. So some studies have shown that actually when you play music, people become in a more aroused state. And indeed, there have been some studies that have looked at the effects of loud music in bars. And they've shown that when you give people um, loud music and alcohol, they drink more. And this might be because the music itself creates this state of arousal. But it's also possible that people can't talk to themselves so they're drinking more during this time Um, actually there's just a large body of research that's generally looked at the way that music influences us too it's actually called atmospherics so it's largely from um, consumer psychology so it looks at the idea that people in bars and shops know what kind of music generates a specific response so there was one study that looked at playing classical music in a wine shop compared to not playing any at all and they found that people didn't necessarily buy more bottles of wine but they did buy more expensive bottles suggesting that different types of music can affect the the way that we respond Um, but there's also research that's looked at the um, use of alcohol in musicians and this has found that actually musicians do appear to drink more alcohol essentially part of their job and their occupation is to be in bars and to be in clubs so technically they're in an alcohol saturated environment Um, we previously discussed the idea that people are paid in alcohol so this is quite a common thing in terms of musicians but also the idea of the romanticism of um, drugs, alcohol and music might be also interlinked that the idea that quite frequently musicians show greater incidence of mental health problems which appears to be tied into that. Guys, so if we can come to you now. As someone who's played in bands in the height of, uh, for want of a better word, lad culture or like times of excess as well as now, is the presence of drugs, and I guess I'm including alcohol here as well, something that you noticed as a musician? Do you think that your status as a musician made drugs more available than they would have been to other people, perhaps? And do you think that's kind of stayed the same, or has that situation changed over the years? Uh, well, it hasn't stayed the same for me, because I've chosen to stop taking drugs. Um, <laughs> but, um, I mean, I think drug youth drug culture has changed dramatically 
Um, I know, like, you know, I've got a lot of friends of all ages and I know, you know, young people in their late teens and a lot of people of university age in their early 20s who, um, yeah, sure, they, they party, they take drugs, but it's... Um, there doesn't seem to be uh, as many... I, I haven't come across, I'm not aware of, in my social circles, as many people who um, kind of, you know, abuse it or use it, live it as a way of life as 15, 20 years ago. Um, I think the... I think when I was in uh, my old band, the 80s Matchbox Behind Disaster, it was, st it was um, you know us and the libertines and you know lots of other bands it was um we had been teenagers in the 90s so we were kind of like really influenced by um you know the part th that decade but really everything was a uh, you know things are kind of um regurgitated reborn reemerge and i think the the kind of rite of passage of drug culture of musicians and people in bands using drugs was still very much um, to be expected and, you know, in, in our psyches. But I think now, uh, because of um, the world's changed so much, you know, we live in an age of information now. And um, because of things like the environmental crisis, I think people's uh, social awareness and self-awareness has changed and is changing for the better, I think. And um, I think that... Um, as a whole, young people, this generation, millennials, if you like, but possibly people even younger, I don't know if they're still classified as millennials. Anyway, um, you know, they're concentrating their gaze uh, and uh, their energies on more valuable things. And, um, but uh, also, um, yeah, can we go back to the first question as well? Yeah, yeah, please do. Um, so, yeah, the, um, about... Um, the anthropologist who um, noted that drugs and or, you know, mind altering substances and music have um, forever been a part of human culture. Um, I don't dispute that, but I don't think that that necessarily means that um, the drug use is inherently uh, valuable or we can't judge how valuable it is, I should say. And um, whereas kind of, uh, you know, different cultures, previous cultures, uh, undoubtedly uh, used mind-altering substances, you know, psychotropic plants, um, to transcend their reality and use it in ceremony and use it for religious purposes. And more than likely, you know, it seems did gain insights, do gain insights into, um, you know, um, different realms or different ways of seeing things, different understandings of, of life, their lives and the world. Um, I think that um, now you know, predominantly people don't use it in that way. And I, I, I remember you mentioned before uh, when we were at the bar, uh, set and setting, which is, uh, you know, something that I've, uh, a term that I've come across when watching documentaries on um, Alan Watts, is that his name? I'm not, I'm not sure. Um, he's an uh, anthropologist who was, um, uh, yeah, deeply interested in... Um, the use of uh, psychedelic substances and you know human consciousness um but you know that yeah it's um it's a term i've come across before anyhow and um but i i, I think there's a fascination with westerners of um you know since kind of really the the sort of um the enlightenment period and the kind of uh death of christianity if you like people um i think you know since the 60s certainly have been looking to the east for alternative uh, life philosophies and um, I don't think there's anything wrong with that I don't have any kind of moral judgment about that I practice Buddhism myself and I've been practicing since I was 19 I'm 39 now so I've been practicing for 20 years but I think there's there's a kind of a tendency for people to think that they can buy um, healing and realization and wisdom and enlightenment um, for, you know, five bucks a hit, as Hunter S. Thompson said in Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. And I, I, I do fear that um, people's fascination now with uh, ayahuasca and uh, DMT is a repeated cycle of what people were going through in the 60s with LSD. Uh, and I think that people th believe it's something it's not. 
Um, I haven't taken it myself. So immediately, you know, people could say, well, that disqualifies me from the conversation. But everyone I've spoken to, unfortunately, who has taken or takes DMT seems to have a kind of air of arrogance about them when they talk about it and um, talk about it as though, you know, they're, they're privy to this esoteric uh, knowledge and experience. And, um, you know, my, my problem with it, I don't doubt that um, it's mind-blowing, fascinating, and that you can learn from it. But, you know, could you do it if you were looking after children? Could you do it on your lunch break at work? Could you do it when you're operating machinery? <laughs> you know, no. But I think with a lot, you know, there's a lot of other um, legitimate bona fide practices that you can do and still live in this 3D reality <laughs> that we all inhabit and share and wake up in every morning. And I think that, you know, it's just... Uh, People have to be careful, I think, about, you know, believing that, um, you know, hallucinations that they're having <laughs> in the brain, uh, you know, aren't, aren't um, you know, aren't the ultimate reality and don't hold the keys to happiness. And, you know, that's my bit on that. I think it's very interesting to bring it on to psychedelics there. So probably now's a good time to turn to Chris Torpy, who uh, is heavily involved in the psych fest that runs in Liverpool. So Chris, can you tell us a little bit about running a psych, uh, psychedelic music festival? We're doing a festival around that, especially in, you know, in this day and age when perhaps um, expectations and experiences have shifted to what it was maybe in the 60s at the height of... Or when, when, the, when the term and the genre was coined, um, the expectations, I think, are perhaps a little bit different and we've moved away from it being um, you have to take the drugs to understand the music or you have to, um, you know, or, or vice versa. I think we've moved so far past that that it's almost kind of like re recreating what was originally created without necessarily there being any substance involved at all. It's almost kind of like recreating the original experience. Um, doing In terms of like what, what the festival does itself, there's going to be an inherent uh, acceptance that certain types of substances are going to be around it was up to people to decide how they interpret enjoying the music or the event itself and what expectations they have of, of, of what that experience is we don't want to it's got nothing to do with us we don't have any involvement that ours is purely about the music and creating a uh, an environment a situation that people feel is reflective for them but guy made a really good point before about the way things are <coughs> The, the trends nowadays. I think people are, certainly younger people, you're right, tend to value health of their, of their, of their bodies and of their, their mental health a lot higher than perhaps used to be uh, 40, 50 years ago, even maybe 20, 30 years ago. There's been a real advancement in that. So that kind of like link between substance taking and enjoyment of music, is it, is it diminishing or, or are we seeing a different version of the way people... I think, I think like uh, a big part of it is that um, because of the environment, because uh, thankfully, like uh, young people's attention is is on the environment, you know, environmental destruction and, um, you know, the kind of uh, bigger issues like, yeah, saving, saving the planet. Uh, I just uh, talked to a lot of young people who just uh, are so much more switched on and responsible now and just, you know, aren't really concerned with kind of, uh, you know, sort of getting wasted as much. I mean, obviously, it still exists, you know, big time. I mean, particularly here in this city, because um, it's like the main drug port for the UK, isn't it? But, um, yeah, I do think that people are, people's, people's minds are opening, yeah. Is there much research? I'm looking to Harry and Sally now. Is there much research into the impact of um, sort of drugs and alcohol's kind of availability within the music industry. Do we know much about those kind of links? Uh, yeah, perhaps I'll say a bit more about the illicit drugs. So I, I think that there, there is a popular discussion at the moment that young people are turning into new 
temperance campaigners or tend to be leading healthier lifestyles. Now, that's not necessarily true when we look at some of the data. So certainly compared to the, uh, the peak of rave culture in the, the 90s, for example, and early 2000s, then uh, substance use prevalence has decreased. But if we look at particular drugs, then actually there has been an increase in use. So ecstasy use at the moment is the highest it's been for, for many years. And perhaps we, we can we talk about some of, the, some of the reasons why. Can I just ask you where you got that data, though? Uh, yeah, that, that's from scientific surveys uh, and government surveys as well. Mm. I so, find that hard to believe. I think ketamine, but sorry, I'm interrupting. Please oh, no, no, that's fine. Ketamine use has increased. Cocaine use has increased over the last few years. But I suppose this really speaks to the fact that uh, when we look at substance use, like music there's very rapid and dynamic changes. And that can be reflected in styles of music. I mean, when we were preparing for this discussion, we were reflecting on Pete Doherty and the, the Camden scene and you know how that type of scene doesn't really exist anymore and there were specific drugs associated with that. But back to your question, Susie, about is there something about the music industry and drug use in general? Well... And I think, I think perhaps that this was alluded to, that there's an, that there's an unsp- unspoken acceptance that a lot of leisure culture, festivals and nightclubs wouldn't exist if people didn't want to take drugs in them. You know, and there's lots of pressures, perhaps rightly so, from local councils and licensing issues where, for example, festivals, bars and nightclubs have to be very proactive in promoting a zero-tolerance zero perspective on these sorts of issues. But the reality is that a lot of these scenes and a lot of these uh, clubs wouldn't even exist if people weren't, weren't using substances. And uh, something which I'm particularly interested in at the moment is looking internationally. And I'm sure Sally will talk about alcohol and tobacco around this. But very interestingly, that in North America, particularly in Canada, where they've moved to full national legalization of cannabis, as we've seen historically with alcohol and tobacco, now cannabis is becoming part of the national marketing picture around live music and musical events you know we have the carling academy we have the i was going to say the red bull academy but that's uh, uh that's a soft drink uh, but but as policy changes yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah absolutely substances are also becoming part of this national uh, uh, industry and infrastructure as well. And Sally can perhaps talk about historically around alcohol and tobacco around that. Yeah, I absolutely want to come on to alcohol now because, I mean, we talk about drug use at festivals and drug use around music and by far the most prevalent drug that's used around music is obviously alcohol. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you're a musician, quite often your workplace is a bar or a club, which might not be exactly the ideal conditions to promote not drinking or sobriety. Um, but also coupled together with the idea, I think we talked about sometimes um, if bands aren't played that paid that well, they might be given alcohol at a gig or given a free bar quite often. Um, but also there is evidence to suggest that if your workplace is a workplace that sells alcohol, for example, your, your bar staff, or um, you're a musician, for example, your risk of developing an alcohol-related problem is increased. But also this idea of there being a romantic link between drug use and alcohol use and music and creativity is one that's gone, uh, you know, way back to the era of kind of jazz and the link there with cannabis and alcohol use. Um, But actually, if you look at some of the literature, there's some qualitative literature. So that means that people have sat down and they've interviewed musicians about how they feel about alcohol and it's linked to their profession of being a, um, uh, a musician. It suggests that alcohol is very linked to the idea that it's it's pretty stressful being a musician. There can be financial insecurity, um, anxiety around performing, um, uh, performing to your ideals of being a musician. And I think we talked about earlier, Susie, in our chats about the the boredom in between sound checking or moving from hotel rooms. And, And this particular study, when it interviewed people, suggested that 
one of the main reasons for using alcohol was indeed boredom, but also this idea of pressure, um, pressure to perform, pressure to uh, intermittent working, for example. So it might be that actually there is a really strong link between alcohol use in musicians, but it's being driven by something else, you know, uh, having a very fresh... Uh, stressful job but also potentially mental health problems that kind of link these two things together absolutely i think that's a really uh key point there and i i've been a touring musician um in my early 20s and i've definitely never never played a venue where there hasn't been alcohol provided for free for the musicians i've um I've travelled with other musicians, sort of from folk musicians to electronic musicians, and in, in all cases, it might be a different kind of alcohol on the rider, but there's always alcohol on the rider. There's always free alcohol available for the musicians. Quite often it's been the case of, I'm really sorry, we can't give you a bigger fee, but here's a crate of beer, that kind of thing. So it's very much, it's absolutely a part of it. And um, Christopher, if I could come back to you, is that something that you've sort of experienced from talking to bands, this idea that, that alcohol is very kind of all-pervasive amongst musicians or in the music industry? Yeah, definitely, but it's, it's probably gone beyond that. It's a, it's, it, you don't even need to vocalise it. It's almost accepted that that's what the situation is. Um, but I have noticed a trend a lot recently that there's been... Um, musicians are, are much more comfortable to be honest about their, um, about their situation and about any difficulties they've, they've had with it. Um, certainly around, um, I, th- I think probably more so around actually subs- like drug taking rather than necessarily alcohol. Yeah. Um, because I think general trends in society are, um, there's a lot more respect for our mental well-being and our, and our kind of bodily well-being. So there's, I think, you, you tend to see a lot more artists now being honest and talking about any struggles they've had, but also valuing... Um, anything that they've done themselves to kind of be uh, be a bit look after themselves be be sober not go into kind of too much excess um and there's been like a, a recent uh, example you say idols um frontman has been saying oh, it's the first tour he's done sober and that's a really interesting point journalistically to be able to discuss and think well that's how you know if i was interviewing i'd be wanting to know how difficult is that what are asking these kind of questions what are the difficult what are the expectations you have what obstacles do you have to kind of overcome in doing that well, i have, about, have to do another episode with idols hint hint idols yeah <laughs> if you're listening but even just in general like sally you said the romantic notion of um of like of like drug taking and and drinking are wrong uh, among kind of certain rock musicians as well of certain eras gone by that was the the, the idea of a rock star being trashing hotel rooms and uh, being uh, heavy drinking and keith richards being able to say he, he snorted his, his father's ashes um, that was kind of almost accepted and then probably also monetized by um kind of certainly the, the, the alcohol industry to kind of like push oh yeah well, this is a this is a, a thing cool rock stars do it you can do that as well you can be a part of the same mm. same world but you see it now more and more that that's not the cool rock star image. That wouldn't go down well now. I don't know if it, you know some of the, the top rock stars might be snorting people's ashes, but they would never come out and say it and to, to earn kind of like cool points in an interview because they'd be, you know, people are aware now that that is just completely ridiculous. It's not like, oh, yeah, wow, that's really great. I want to be like that. It's a bit like, mm, nah, man, that's, that, that, isn't, that isn't good. You're... You're, you're losing it a bit. So they could... I think the way music is pushed to us and almost marketed to us is changing a lot differently, and we do value those personal stories of people who are, who are honest and say, this isn't for me. I, I want to lead a kind of... Uh, I want to look after myself. I want to take care. I think this is, you know, this is my art, but I'm going to look after my, my body as well. I'm not going to put myself through these extremes. Um, Guy, I wanted to ask you about mental health, and obviously this might be a personal question, so if you don't want to answer it, I completely understand. But obviously you've uh, recorded songs called things like Psychosis Safari, where you talk about alcohol use. You're in a band at the moment called DSM-4, and obviously for people who don't know, the DSM is um, a manual for diagnosing mental health problems. So the DSM-4 is actually not the most recent one, but the... Most re- the second most recent one. Um, and I, so I was just wondering, is, is mental health something that's sort of important to you and, and what do you think about the link between mental health and substance use? Uh, yeah, well, there's undeniably a link between uh, substance misuse and mental health. Um, 
But I mean, it's um, there's a. I mean, I, I read recently like um, some studies were done that um, kind of were recognizing that alcohol causes mental health problems, mental illness. You know, um, which having experienced that firsthand, you know for the past 20 years or something, um, <laughs> you know, it seemed obvious, but um, I'd never heard it, you know, I've never read about it before, like in a, in a paper or online or anything until relatively recently, past couple of years. But yeah, um, I think music and drugs, um, going back to the first question as well, like, I mean, it's about uh, transcendence, isn't it? Transcending who we are or, you know, our problems or the way that we, things, you know, things that are on our mind or, you know, the way we see ourselves or the world and just, uh, you know, liberating ourselves from that. But <clears throat> I just think that, uh, like, you know, at the risk of sounding like a complete granddad, like, I, I feel so sad when I see uh, young people and particularly young men, because I'm a young man, you know, out, and they're just, like, wired on coke, and they think they're having a good time, but they're just not having a good time. Like, they're not happy. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I just... Um, but, like, what you were talking about, that kind of um, glamorization of drugs. And I, I just think that it's... Um, yeah, cocaine, to me, cocaine and alcohol, I think, are the ugliest drugs. Obviously, alcohol is kind of totally socially acceptable and it's, like, marketed and taxed and monetized, as you said, all the rest of it. But um, I think people are really... Everyone wants to be happy, don't they? Like, everyone wants uh, to be happy and uh, loved <laughs> and, and feel, you know, safe. And I think that drugs and alcohol and music are like a, a gateway for us to uh, try and experience that with other people. And... Um, but it's, it's just fleeting. And I'm sure kind of lots of people will agree that, you know, if you've ever kind of been in a, a scene where people like party and take drugs a lot, you can, in, in the moment when you're on a substance, you'll, you'll say to someone, yeah, yeah, we should definitely meet up next week, you know. <laughs> and like, but when you see them in the street, it's always awkward because actually the connection wasn't real. Or it was, it was drug-induced, you know. And I just think it takes, like, a, like to develop, like, a, 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 a connection, like, based on the heart, based on respect with, with another person, like, really takes time, doesn't it? And um, I just think that you're not kind of... Uh, I don't know... I mean, it's changing, for sure, but I don't know... Still, it's, it's just not deemed cool, is it? It's not... You know, but if you if you go out and you you know you, you sort of you know do a few cheeky lines, you know that's like that's meant to be the way that you like connect with like other people and other young men. And it, yeah, it's just it's really really sad. I was at a um, I played um, the DSM4, the band. I mean, we played Sound City yesterday, and I was watching some after our set. I was watching some other great bands. I saw this uh, band from Russia uh, called Short Paris, uh, sort of like a more experimental Depeche Mode or something. Brilliant, you know. And just with the music and the performance, like, I was completely transported. It was like I was watching a David Lynch film or something. I was, like, dreaming. And then I just started dancing. And I haven't danced in public for about... since about 1997. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was always, like, a kind of closet drug taker, like, take lots of acid and pills and then just stay in and listen to music, you know. But that band, like, made me move, you know. And then I looked over. I saw this person walk past me, and then they went and sat in the corner, just like that. So I was, like, dancing, and I just kept looking at them. And I thought, oh, they're having a bad time. And I went over, and I said, are you all right? And they said, oh, you know, um, I don't know where I am. And my phone's run out of battery. Can I use your phone? Then I recognised them, and I'd actually... They were friends with a... You know, we had a mutual friend, and we'd just been talking about 10 minutes before outside... But they'd taken acid and forgotten what was going on and got lost. And anyway, so I went and found their friends and then their friends came and got them and it was all right and they, they went off. But I just thought, what a sad way to spend your time. Like, 
go out and forget what's going on and end up huddled up in a corner and somehow think that that's like cool and having a transcendent experience. Anyway, I said I was going to sound like a granddad, but there you go. (laughs) Just to pick up on that and kind of like qualify um, the point I said before, I think they're all all linked in. The idea of, of, of the glamour attached to that, I think the veil is kind of being removed slowly in certain genres of music, um, like the, the the rock world, there seems to be that idea that that isn't that doesn't really f- fly anymore. I don't know about like dance music and DJs because that's perhaps a little bit more of a. a I was a just going to say, yeah, in some cases it is being removed, but um, in the research that I do in alcohol and tobacco, one of the things we do know in terms of you know the music industry but also the alcohol and tobacco industry is one of the only ways left to depict alcohol and tobacco uses in music videos because it's banned from tv in most cases well particularly tobacco advertising by, by depict you would mean advertise yeah basically yes yeah. yeah. so um in music videos it's perfectly fine to smoke cigarettes it's perfectly fine to drink alcohol even to the extent that some bands and artists will be um asked to promote a certain brand particularly they might have said it in their lyrics but also it's depicted you know getting drunk or um, smoking cigars in some music videos so there is a very strong link I still think between the music and um, alcohol and tobacco industry in that they know that this is a young audience that is watching music videos watching bands watching artists and this is the one way of still promoting a glamorizing link so it's still happening kind of aspirational culture, it is absolutely yeah. i think you know i'm not ashamed to say we were talking earlier about in my youth the link between sort of wanting to drink a brand like red stripe because the gallagher brothers drank it at the time and this was the 90s and i think that still happens you know perhaps um on a different level of aspirational that there are particular types of whiskey you know very expensive whiskies and very expensive vodkas that are aspirational for young people to drink because the artists that they love are singing about them but they're drinking them in their videos as well so I think that's still happening um even though youth drinking has been going down we're constantly being told that young people don't drink or smoke as much as they used to but actually in certain groups that is still increasing you know there's a very socio-demographic divide between people but also we know that people might not be drinking as often but when they are they're they're binge drinking and um, they're doing that kind of excess that's still promoted in these types of videos Right, there are two more things I want to quickly cover before we throw it open to questions. Um, one of them is, is about um, sort of specific risks to musicians from drugs. And the other one is this idea of creativity. Do drugs really make us more creative? Um, Harry? Yeah, so in, in terms of the increased risk for musicians, uh, then if we think about a non-musician, perhaps they're relationship with drugs most people will start using drugs in their late teens but most people actually mature out of it by their mid to late 20s most people generally do so it's quite a short period of time Uh, people might have you know the occasional experimentation now and again for you know a big event a big landmark birthday or something but most people's exposure to substance use is quite limited The risk is increased if you're in a profession where you're constantly in an environment where other people are in the early phase of that lifetime pathway and you're surrounded by it. So even though you're perhaps, as you're maturing and getting older and ageing, the environments that you're in and the people that are your fans, your listeners, are still very much in the early phase and using that. And, And... you know, we often talk about the cliche of the 27 Club, of, about rock musicians in particular who die at the age of 27. And epidemiological studies have actually confirmed this. So if you're a, a, a rock musician in the USA, you're, uh, 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 if you're aged, you're, 80%, sorry, you're 20% less likely to reach the age of 27 compared to a non-musician because people will generally die at that point or more likely to die because people are at that stage of their career where they've, they've got success, etc. So there's certainly some real risks there. And uh, I, I think some of the environmental risks are hugely important. Uh, and perhaps other panel members can talk about, perhaps more from a, 
uh, uh, some of the reasons why that might be. Would anyone like to chip into that? About sort of the environments, the sort of availability, I guess, of substances. Um, so obviously, um, Chris, I assume you, you are at lots of gigs and at lots of venues backstage, and Guy as a touring musician. Did you find that it was easy to get hold of whatever you wanted? Was it something that was offered to you? Did you have to go and look for it? Sort of, is, uh, do you think that just drugs in general... I mean, alcohol, we've already established, is very much easily available for musicians, but other more illicit substances, do you think, as a musician, they're more available to you than they w would be to people who weren't in your situation? Uh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> I think, yeah. Uh, you, you don't even need to go looking. Sometimes it's, it's, it's always there. And, and, and as a non-performer as well, um, it's the... It's it generally accepted, even though you don't see it, perhaps, all the time. Um, there's going to be, you know, you, you can find out the right person to ask, basically, quite easily. It's, it, it goes hand in hand, definitely. But that's, I'm speaking from my, my experiences, where I go to certain types of events that are in, uh, I suppose, a, a niche of themselves. Um, I don't know about, um, like, club nights or dance music, big festivals, or those kind of different things, or even, like, big, huge pop events. Like, I don't know what those, those experiences are, but I think it, it's part of a culture. It's part of something that some people just do because it's expected, it's the norm. I think that's, we talk about a lot about expectation in these things and what's, what societal norms are. Um, a, a lot of the time, people think they should be doing that because that's the situation, which feeds the fact that there's going to be a supply of things there. And when there's a supply, then that kind of like reinforces the idea that this should be done. Um, and I, I hear anecdotally as well about, I mean, I, again, not having ever, ever toured or being a musician, but here anecdotally about, uh, you say, like bands getting paid in, um, in having a free bar at shows and musicians. There's even, like, it goes further than that, like of being bands being paid in raps of drugs just because that's what they want. It feeds their addiction. So it's no surprise that there are, with this, with this, environment around that it feeds the idea of people um, well, like it creates more of a situation where people can fall into addiction is, is that, does that reflect your experience as well Guy? Yeah, yeah, I mean um, you know when when you're sort of uh, deemed cool for 15 minutes you know everyone wants to kind of give you stuff and sort of yeah clothes and predominantly drugs um, but yeah I think just to um, <laughs> get on my crate again i just think it's like uh we we're conditioned or we condition ourselves into believing that we need to be out of it to to let go which does obviously tie into the sort of you know transcendence thing and i'm sure you know it, it has been going on for you know however long you know people using drugs and music um to to celebrate and to sort of uh, you know transcend what's the word mundane itty <laughs> um <laughs> but it's just uh i think it's just it's, we just got a real problem with the way that people use them you know and yeah so can i ask you then a, this question about creativity is when you oh, when that's you just all a, that's when all you a were, lie. but when you were using yeah. substances did you used to no. write music when no. you were higher or anything like that no definitely not and is there any evidence that drugs fuel creativity I mean, uh, well, I'm thinking, like, at the moment, particularly, lots of people are going on and on about microdosing. Yeah, I was, I was going to say about there's lots of discussions about microdosing, and, of course, creativity can be expressed in many different ways. Even scientists can be creative in our analytical what? thinking. <laughs> uh, uh, and, and certainly around microdosing, which is where people self-administer sub-threshold, sub-perceptual threshold doses. Uh, and the, the, the people have discussed about this this but there really is no scientific evidence there's, there's certainly studies which are in their genesis and developing around this but there's nothing really there's nothing really solid in the scientific evidence uh and i was just thinking about my own listening tastes and what, one of my favorite albums is by ashrar temple uh and an album called seven up and chris might know this one and it's recorded with a bunch of German and Swiss musicians recorded uh, an album with Timothy Leary in the early 70s. High on LSD, uh, uh, the highest doses ever recorded by men, according to people who were there. 
And this is a classic example. You know, they sound like they're having a wild time, creative and expressive and expansive music. Uh, but on reflection, it's pretty unlistenable. <laughs> so, but it is your favourite album. It is one of my favourite, but that, that's more... That's more, that's uh, that's more about more, you than the music. That, that's more about the, uh, the conditions and the history and yeah, culture in which yeah. it was created. This, this mythos that, wow, this is the ultimate LSD album. But actually, it's not that great music. <laughs> Whereas I really do love Piper at the Gates of Dawn. It's absolutely yes. one of my favourites. I think that's probably a good place to throw it open to questions. Does anybody have... There is a roving microphone at the front. Would anybody like to kick us off with a question? Brilliant. Um, it's a guy mainly, but feel free to answer. Um, you've been out for seven years. So yeah. Um, but how do you find it going to sound check quite early and then hanging around until like nine or ten? So shall I just repeat the question? So the question's about um, what's it like being a touring musician and not drinking or taking drugs? How do you deal with the sort of really long time gaps between soundcheck and performance? Like if your bandmates are still drinking and like or taking other substances, sort of how do you maintain that relationship with them? Is that? I think um, there's an illusion that you know, uh, but when I stopped drinking, I went to see some of my old friends that I used to get, you know, smashed with. And um, I was sitting there, and there, there, there's a difference, like when you go out, when I go out, there, there, there's a point in the night where people turn into animals. And, um, it, and it's just, uh, it becomes really boring at that point because they're not funny, actually. And everyone's laughing at their own jokes and kind of, you know, breathing boozy breath into your face. And that's the point you go home, you know. But, um, like, there's an illusion that, like, uh, when, yeah, so at this point in this night, all of a sudden it went quiet. And um, my friend said to me very solemnly, so... What do you do? <laughs> and it's just like, well, I live. Do you know what I mean? Like, I read, I, you know, go out and talk to other people. And, uh, you know, so it's exactly the same, of course, you know, in the context of being on the road. It's just like, well, what do you do? Well, you know, what do you do in your day when you're not drinking? You know, you don't have to drink, but it's, it's an attachment. And um, when I stopped drinking, <clears throat> the morning that I stopped, uh, I woke up. And I'd had, like, a terrible blackout, one of many, many. And I knew that, like, you know, things had gone badly wrong. And, uh, you know, I probably behaved in a really regrettable way. But <clears throat> I'd, some, the only way I can describe it is if I had hands in my stomach that had been gripping on, they'd let go. And I just knew that I never would drink again, and I haven't. And, um, it's, and I think, you know, it, we have attachment to things, don't we? Like, uh, you know, uh, other people, the way other people see us, clothes, money, jobs, job title, wh whatever it is. Like, we're attached to these, we give these things importance and we, we base our lives on them. We put them at the centre and we make them our sort of object of worship, if you like. like I need this, I've got to, you know. And um, I think, you know, we can, we can learn, all of us, you know, it's... Everybody can do it. You can just learn to let go. I'm going to throw yeah. it to Sally as well, because I think the other part of your question was advice for people who are sort of wanting to cut down. Um, so, Sally, what's the kind of, like, what sort of, what possible ways are there for people to cut down? Is there help available? Where do people go? That sort of thing. Okay. Um, also linking that to sort of being in the context of being a musician, that I mean, it's amazing that you were able to stop drinking, and that's that's fantastic. But it can be really difficult for people to cut down. Um, particularly, we know in the research there is so much about peer influence and um, availability. So seeing other people drinking, um, everyone else is having a good time. It can be really difficult to resist if free alcohol is made available to you if you're in a gig and 
constantly surrounded by the smell and sight of alcohol so that can be it can be really difficult to cut down and even to go for a long period without drinking and and start again because these cues that we have around us seeing people drinking smelling alcohol can be reactive in our brain in a way that we don't have control over so it can be a really difficult thing to do um but i guess things that you can do are to um look at the guidelines that are available by the government that suggest how much we should drink in a week um there's always things like uh, having one uh, soft drink in between drinking um alcoholic drinks of course subbing out a drink some great alcohol-free alternatives um um we've had a Susie and I have tried a few al- non-alcoholic beers this yeah we came out weekend. to Smithtown Road Festival the night before we were running a 10k so we did a, bo- a booze-free festival experience and I've also I've like last year I trained for a marathon and I found that I was able to go out with people who were drinking and have a great time drinking like soft drinks or alcohol-free beers, that kind of thing. And because of what we've we've sort of alluded to it already, that the kind of the expectation of a substance is so powerful that actually there are times when I was out drinking alcohol-free beer that I would feel I would feel tipsy, I'd feel a bit drunk, I'd be having like I wouldn't be thinking these people are all intoxicated and I'm not. I'd be thinking we are all having a nice time together. So I don't think it has to be a kind of um, you have to set yourself apart from people who are using substances. I think it's perfectly and it's becoming like as people are becoming like far more people now are non-drinkers than were say 10 years ago so it's becoming much more acceptable to go out and not drink but still be in a bar having a social time and it's just kind of reframing your own experience of it I guess yeah I think it depends who who you socialize with doesn't it and uh, who you are of course case by case but I think you're absolutely right it doesn't have to be like one or the other sorry if I gave that impression no not at all um but yeah, I mean, I also did like a, um, a 12-step program of recovery. So that helped me as well. And I also practice um, Nichiren Buddhism. So when I woke up that morning and that kind of um, chain, if you liked, within me had been cut, I felt, you know, my experience was that that was a direct benefit, a result of my Buddhist practice. So I've broken through. But if you, if you want to talk about that, I can talk about that afterwards. Um, but also, like, it depends just on, you know, I think one has to self-reflect. And it's like, you know, if you're, just, if you're drinking too much or doing anything too much, you know, it depends on uh, who you are. And y- you may well be able to just cut it down. Do you know what I mean? It's, uh, but if, if it's really, like, causing you and other people suffering and you're having blackouts... I mean, I got fired from 26 jobs, man. Do you know what I mean? So, like, there was definitely a problem. But, uh, <laughs> but like, you know, you, so I, I, I had to stop. And for me, there's no sacrifice. Like, my life is, like, infinitely better now. And I don't ever feel like I'm missing out in any way. Um, but, you know... It's, um, it's just personal choice, isn't it? You have to take responsibility for your own life, and that's it, isn't it? Do we have more questions? Why did you start taking drugs in the first place? How old were you? Me. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, peer pressure. I saw, I saw my friends smoking dope, and uh, I thought it smelt horrible. And, uh, and I didn't like the way cigarettes tasted. But in the end, I just didn't want to be the odd one out. That was the surface reason. Those were the conditions. But I think on a deeper level, um, to escape, like self-medicate. And, and uh, uh, generally, when you look at some of the research evidence, and there's been lots looking into the reasons why use, people use illegal drugs, for example, and many of them are the reasons you would expect. Curiosity, availability, uh, musical preference as well. There's a whole, there's a whole body of uh, research literature which has looked at particularly young teenagers' musical preference and how that shapes their understanding of different substance use. 
But there's also a, another area of thought which has developed more recently, and this has been almost a direct response to some of the new pressures that young people are facing in, in today's world. The fact that there's an increase in social pressures, career pressures, educational pressures. Young people are growing up in a, an environment of austerity in many cities. And there's thinking around this that substances, whether that's alcohol or cocaine or ecstasy, provide a convenient and predictable way of transitioning from leading stressful lives to a life which is pro-social and enables connections with other people, whether that's real or perceived. And in fact, the drugs aren't valued for the effects or the hallucinations or the euphoria in and of themselves, but what they allow people to do subsequently in terms of social relationships. And I think that's a, a more um, subtle, subtly emerging issue. So like, like Portugal, like Amsterdam, the Netherlands, do you think drugs should be legalised in this country? Yes. Yeah, definitely. I think all think, drugs should be legalised. Do you think pharmaceuticals have a lot to answer for? Uh, I, I, I think uh, uh, many pharmaceuticals have many important evidence-based uses in treatment. Uh, uh, in direct response to your question, I think we, have, we should have a strictly regulated system of accessibility and availability around substances, learning from some of the mistakes we made with alcohol and tobacco. And there's no reason why that shouldn't just apply to cannabis. I think if we're going to be radical about drug laws, then it's not just about legalising cannabis. It's about regulating all types of drugs. And that also includes heroin and crack cocaine. But I think we need a, a new government, like a new kind of government, oh, yeah. to, uh, to, to, yeah, to do that. Because can you imagine, like, Theresa May being in charge of the drugs? <laughs> I'm definitely cutting her name out of the podcast. Yeah. Okay, that for I also was going to say I think we do need we need to acknowledge the fact that we probably haven't always got it right with alcohol and tobacco, and that's on a global scale because if you look at that compared to any other drug use, they are they create the biggest harm, and they are already legal. So I do think we need to learn lessons from what we've done with alcohol because if you think about alcohol in particular, it's the biggest used drug in the entire world and um, it doesn't look like necessarily the most harmful drug when you look at just the harms to the person who's using it but when you include harms to other people alcohol skyrockets it's a drug that kind of and it's pretty high up the harms to the individual as oh, well. oh yeah absolutely yeah it's already pretty high sorry up to there. say that in a pub <laughs> it is pretty high up there but when you include yeah the idea that there's violence to other people um, vandalism that kind of thing um so yeah we do Car need crashes, to we yeah. need to get it right with legal drugs maybe first <laughs> but i think uh you like you make a very good point there that the drugs that we have that are legal are particularly harmful potentially but we take risks every day and the important thing is having control and education over the risks that we take so we know when we drink we know exactly what we what we're taking we know what risks we're we're partaking in we know when we get into a car what level of risk we're taking in and at the moment with illicit substances there's a whole extra layer of risk because of their the fact that they're not regulated we don't if you get given a white powder or a pill you don't know what's in it so you're putting a whole extra level of risk on top of the risks that you're sort of deciding to take at any time but, but i think also sorry to uh, uh butt in there susie that sometimes risk reduction can have opposite effects than intended. So if we think, for example, you know, f f uh, really well-run festivals and nightclubs, uh, they have welfare on site, they have medically trained staff, uh, you'll, you'll no doubt have to go through a security gate you know, to check you for knives or whatever, zero tolerance towards drugs, and you can, you can argue uh, for and against that. But for many people who are attracted to illicit substances because they are risk takers then they're also attracted to environments which are risk promoting as well so in liverpool is that liverpool echo loves to splash stories just like any other city uh, we have illegal raves taking place in warehouses completely unregulated environments potentially pro harm environments 
But this is also, I think, directly in response to maybe some of the over-officious regulation that we have around some leisure spaces. People want to be reckless. They want to let go. They want to enjoy the carnivalesque experiences of nightlife where usual rules don't matter. And we need to accept this and at least try and reduce some of the harms associated with that, but understand the pleasures and the attraction of those sorts of environments as well. Yeah. We've probably got time for one more question, if anyone else has one. I'm interested in just how you think education's gone on, really, people understanding uh, about accessibility. I'm just conscious there's almost an extreme of people don't understand about drugs at all. Um, I remember being in work years ago, and an email went round about um, people giving out LSD on transfers to children, so be careful. I was just like, oh. So the question is about um, is education around drugs improving or what do we think of it? Yeah, yeah. I used to see stuff that was a, that was recent years ago, Mercy Regional Health Authority put out and it was around um, what drugs were, what they did for you, what was a sensible dosage. It was real information, and I think if you don't get that information, mm. you get your information from somebody else. And the problem, the, 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 problem, the problem is with schools, because I've taught for 12 years, mm-hmm. and PHSA, it was never ever brought up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's never ever discussed. That's what I'm saying, so. And it should be. And I think once you, once you arrive at an yeah, illegal rate, and you see this world going on, yeah. and you're like, drugs are bad, drugs are bad, and then, oh, no, they're not, and you have a little bit of something. <laughs> and then you're like, oh, I'm in another world now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm out in this other world. No, I, 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 I don't think people get that. I think, I think the point you're making is incredibly important. And to be honest, it's why I started doing this podcast in the first place, is that it is really hard to find out credible, non-judgmental information about drugs, about their effects, about the myths and misconceptions. But I would extend that to that's also true about alcohol and that's also true about tobacco, that we all hold so many mi- misconceptions about a lot of these substances. And even like when I've been researching different substances for the podcast I found things that I thought were the case that weren't the case and that kind of thing and to come back to the point about education I mean I'm in my mid-30s now but when I was at school we had one lesson about um, illicit drugs and it was taught by a police officer it was presented as a criminal um, a sort of a a criminal concern rather than a health concern and I think that's very telling I I had a conversation with a uh, paramedic from years ago but um, and he was saying, oh, this guy was up his head on drugs. And I was like, so what was he on? He was, he was on drugs. Drugs. All drugs are the same, yeah. Cannabis was, 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 it, was it cocaine and alcohol. Probably there's, there's a different, there's different mm-hmm. mood. And it's like drugs. I was like, I can't believe you're a paramedic and you don't know... I'm going to be controversial now and, and uh, uh, stick up for the Tories. <laughs> that is controversial. Yeah, uh, but the, the reason why I'll, I'll, qual- I'll, I'll qualify this is, is the government now, as you, as you might know, and I'm sure you do know, uh, that in schools now, secondary schools, there are statutory sex relationships and health education. And that's going to be starting to be implemented from September of next year. And as part of that... There's drug and alcohol education. Now, there is questions about what the quality of that education is going to be because teachers aren't experts. They have 2,000 other things they need to be worrying about. So there's that concern there. But then there's also an element about by providing knowledge and providing information, what are you actually doing? You're enabling people to maybe pass tests. But the real key thing is implementing that information and knowledge into their own lives and their own drug-using practices. And that's slightly more controversial because you're getting into the realm of harm reduction there, you know, the leaflets that you were talking about. And that is, I think, is a skill and a practice which we can't really expect schools to do and teachers to do because it is such a difficult thing to do correctly. I think we'll leave it there. Thank you all again very, very much. Hope you enjoyed it. And it'll be available for download soon. And there we go. I really hope you enjoyed that episode. Thanks again to the panel, to Smithdown Road Festival and to the Craft Taproom. Thanks also to the members of the audience who asked questions and got involved. 
As I said at the beginning of the episode, there's going to be a short break now for the rest of the summer. I have to finish writing Say Why to Drugs the book, as well as getting a lot of work done and various other less exciting things. But we'll return in the autumn. In the meantime, if you have any suggestions for topics for episodes or for guests I should get on, please get in touch with me on Twitter, join the Facebook group, drop me an email, whatever. Thanks so much for listening and join me soon for more Say Why to Drugses. Bye. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.